0: Well, good morning. It is a uh, is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I want to thank Ned for asking me to fill in for him this morning while he's uh, recovering from his knee surgery. Um, it is an an honor to be able to preach the word, and I'm I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Let me pray for us uh, before we begin. Father, we uh, we thank you for this time that you've given us just to study your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that our time this morning uh, will be intentional and that it will be focused. And Lord, that we can uh, focus on you. Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity every week to to gather as we do. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll be glorified with what takes place in this building. Lord, we thank you that this has been a church um, that has a reputation for um, being faithful to your word. And Lord, we pray that that will continue this morning. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me Uh, Lord, I pray that you will use my foolish words uh, for the advancement of your gospel. Lord, I just pray that the the Holy Spirit will move in this place today. And uh, all these things we pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bible with you, let me get you to turn over to John chapter 3. This is going to be our main area of focus this morning. And while you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 3, let me give you just a little bit of information on the Gospel of John. I find that this is always helpful for us uh, as we try to understand everything in their proper context. Uh, The Gospel of John was written in the mid to late 80s. So from that date, uh, you can clearly see that it was not the first book written for the New Testament, but it was also not the last. Revelation was written sometime in the 90s. Uh, so as you can see, the Gospel of John was written towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, there are also there are several Johns listed in the New Testament, uh, but most scholars agree that, this, that the John who wrote the Gospel of John is the Apostle John. And uh, this book is believed by many people to be the most theologically complex of the four Gospels. So as you read through the four of them, uh, there's a lot of big ideas in here that are pretty complex. Uh, there's two particular big ideas that John is is pretty big on as he, as he writes. The first is this idea of faith, and the second is this idea of believing. Uh, now this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture. You already know what I'm going to say. We're going to be looking at John 3.16. And in fact, there's probably only one verse in all of Scripture uh, that has Uh, that's possibly any more popular than John 3.16, and it's probably only that way because of our current culture right now, and that's Matthew 7.1, and even if that reference doesn't ring a bell, uh, you'll know the the passage as soon as I tell it to you. It's, uh, do not judge or you too will be judged. Uh, You'll probably hear that one quoted more Uh, Than John 3.16, but that's probably something new just to our current culture. Uh, But without a doubt, John 3.16 is definitely one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture, one of the most widely recognized, most widely known, most widely studied, um, most widely recited verses uh, in all of Scripture. Now, what I want to do with you this morning uh, before we actually begin is I want to tell you uh, about a a small controversy with this verse. I want to make you aware of this just in case anyone ever brings this to your attention. I want to to make sure that you're equipped and that you're prepared for how to handle this. Uh, Let me just ask a quick question. Who in here has a red letter edition Bible? Go ahead and, and raise your hand for me real quick. All right, you can put your hand back down. For those of you who are not familiar with what I'm talking about, maybe you're new to church, Um, the red-letter Bible is basically just a Bible that that takes the words that have been believed to have been said by Jesus and makes them red. All the other letters are black. Uh, That's all the red-letter edition uh, Bible is. Uh, Well, this morning, if you have a red-letter edition um, Bible, you'll notice that John 3.16 is in red letters. However, there is evidence, though, that suggests that this might not be the case. In other words, there's evidence to, to suggest that possibly Jesus didn't say John 3, 16, and instead it might have been John. So what's the controversy? Well, if you have, um, as you look, you'll notice that there are people, uh, there's, a, there's a growing belief among people right now that, that says that basically we should only trust in the words of Jesus and that nothing else really matters. Uh, you'll hear this often. Um, in other words, if, if the letters are red, then you can trust it. If the letters are black, then you can't. If Jesus said it, then it's got to be true. If Paul, or Moses, or Peter, or David, or anybody else said it, well, they're just fallible men, and they could have, they could have easily put some errors in the Bible. So, for example, here's just a, a common statement that you will hear people say uh, regarding this particular controversy, and it deals with the hot-button issue of homosexuality. People will say, well, since Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, then he must not be against it. Or they'll even take it a step further, and they'll say, well, since Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, then he must be okay with it. And so they make this argument from silence, and they say that since there's not any red letters in the Bible that specifically address this issue, then somehow that means that God must be okay with this. And this is a horrible way of viewing Scripture. This view, uh, without a doubt, is extremely small, and if we're going to have any kind of credibility when we're talking to these people, then we have to have a reasonable answer uh, to defend ourselves. Uh, And as I just said, the people who make this argument, uh, they basically are saying that we can only trust in the words of Jesus, and they say that everybody else who has written anything for the Bible um, has, has, you know, possibly put errors in there just because they're men, and there's only one problem With that statement, there's only one problem with their argument, and that's the fact that Jesus didn't write any of the Bible. Y'all catch that? Jesus wrote 0% of the Bible. Everything that we know about Jesus was written by men. All of the red letters in your Bible were written either by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We are completely dependent upon those four men to have accurately recorded what took place and what Jesus said in order for us to get our information about Jesus. So these people who are saying that we cannot trust in the black letters because they were written by men, they're doing the very thing that they're against. They're still trusting in the words of men. They're trusting in the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to have accurately recorded the red letters. It's the, it, it's the same thing, and it's a very hypocritical argument if we're honest. So whether the letters are in red or black, it doesn't really change anything, and it's—it's it's, honestly, it's irrelevant. Whether Jesus said it or John said it, or Paul, or Moses, it's still God's Word. And we can have full confidence that it was given to us by divinely inspired authors who are writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Just in the discussion right there. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This passage does not say that only the red letters are God-breathed, does it? It says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so whether the letters are red or black, it doesn't really change anything. It's still God's Word, and that's true for us this morning as we look at John three sixteen. And I just wanted you to be aware of this issue just in case anyone ever brings it to your attention. Whether it's with this verse or any other verse, uh, I just wanted you to have a, uh, a good response. I wanted you to be prepared of how you would respond. Well, my goal this morning is to help us understand John 3.16 the way that John intended for us to understand it. Now, most of you know this verse by heart, and just for proof, let me just ask you, uh, what is the first word in John 3.16? Go ahead and tell me. Four. That's exactly right. So now let me ask you a rhetorical question. Why did John start John 3.16 off with four? Have you ever thought about that before? Well, obviously... He was building an argument, and it led up to this point where it became necessary for him to say, "For, "God so loved the world." And so for us to correctly understand John 3:16, we have to understand it in its context of what's going on. We have to understand what's going on in John chapter three. And more specifically, we have to understand what's going on in verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 are the key to us understanding what's taking place in John 3:16. And for us to understand what's going on in verses 14 and 15, we have to understand what's going on all the way back in Numbers chapter 21. So as you can see, we've got quite a bit of work to do. And if you're all right with it, I'd like to just jump right on into the text and, uh, and start reading. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, what I want us to do is I want us to start at John chapter three, verse one, and we're going to read all the way through verse 15. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you have a different translation than me, that's okay. Uh, It's the exact same passage. It just might sound a little bit different than mine. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, so now that we can understand what's going on in these passages, let me just unpack some of these details for you. First, we see that there's a man named Nicodemus. Verse 1 says that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And for those of you who are not familiar with what either of those mean, basically Pharisees were just kind of the religious nerds of their day. Um, It was their job to to know the Bible very well. Um, And they were also the ones who considered themselves to be the religious experts. Uh, They wanted you to come to them if you had any kind of spiritual question because they thought they were it. They were the top dogs. Uh, while in school, it was their job to memorize the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. That's the books of the law, the Torah. And many of them actually went on to memorize the entire Old Testament. You have to remember, at this time, the New Testament had not yet been written. Now, being a ruler of the Jews basically just meant that he had an important place on the Sanhedrin court, uh, which was kind of like our Supreme Court in the fact that it had a lot of power and a lot of respect. Uh, but now, Nicodemus, at this point, he's obviously very interested in Jesus. Not only has he heard about the things that Jesus has done, but he's seen them with his own eyes. So he comes to Jesus one night and he begins this dialogue with him. He starts talking with him and asking him questions. And notice what Jesus does. The first thing Jesus does is actually turns the conversation on him and, and look at how he answers. Um, he, he, he starts talking about this idea of being spiritually born again. He tells him that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So after Nicodemus discusses this idea with Jesus for a minute, Jesus then kind of gets on to him for, for being a teacher of the Jews and not being able to understand these spiritual truths. And then he says this. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All right, now there's two things that, that I want to bring to your attention about this particular verse. First, when he says that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, do not accidentally mistake that to, to um, don't accidentally understand that to mean that no one has ever gone to heaven before. That's not what this verse is saying. When it says no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, it's talking about ascending and descending from the council of the Godhead. So make sure you understand that. I don't want anybody to think that no one has gone to heaven at this point. Obviously, other passages in Scripture affirm that there are people in heaven. Now, but second, let me help you understand what this the Son of Man title is all about. When Jesus says the Son of Man, he's obviously referring to himself. But don't make the mistake here, though, of thinking that this is a a title that is only in reference to his humanity. You see, in church, we're taught that Jesus Christ has two natures, okay? We're taught that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and that is true, 100% true. So he's both fully God, fully man, one person. And then what we do is we see other titles in Scripture and we say, all right, son of God, we'll put this in the divine category, And then son of man, we'll put this in the humanity category. We'll put this on his his man side. And that's actually not how this goes. According to scripture that I'm about to show you, the son of man is actually a title that is in reference to his divinity. Both the son of God and the son of man both point to his God nature. And let me show you this. If you've got your Bible still open to John chapter 3, just leave your thumb right there. Uh, We're going to be right back to it. Go ahead and flip over with me uh, to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 when you get there. let me start in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, and we all know who that is, that's God the Father, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. All right, let's time out for just a minute. Basically, what this is called is apocalyptic prophecy. This is end times prophecy that Daniel is revealing right here. He's seeing this vision of heaven, and he's explaining it to us right here. So let's, let's keep going. We're in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. All right, so there's our phrase. Now you guys pay attention to what is said about this son of man right here. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right, so we see here in Daniel chapter 7, we see this vision of heaven. The Ancient of Days is there, who we've already said is God the Father, And then one like a son of man arrives on the scene. And then we see in verse 14 that it says, And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is not language that points to one's humanity. That is one that points to one's divinity, to their God nature. As you can clearly see from this passage, this is, this is talking, when Jesus is you know, referring to himself as the Son of Man, he's referring to Daniel chapter 7. And let me just tell you here, this is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, by the way, in the, uh, in the New Testament. The, the phrase Son of Man is used 81 times, and every single time it's used, it's used in reference to Jesus Christ. Basically, every single time Jesus says that he's the Son of Man, he says, I'm that guy in Daniel chapter 7. Now, he's not speaking to people who are biblically illiterate. He's speaking to people who know their Bibles well. And when he says that he's the son of man, their ears perk up and they say, wait a second. We know Daniel chapter 7, and you just called yourself the son of man. So you're saying that you're that guy. And he says, yes, I'm that guy who's going to receive an everlasting dominion from God the Father. I'm the guy who's going, who's going to receive a kingdom that will not pass away and whose kingdom will not be destroyed. That's how we need to understand This Son of Man title. All right, so finally we get to the big part of this section that really helps us understand John 3 16. We're now at John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And I'll give you a second to flip back. Uh, We're back at John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And here's what he says He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And when it says that he may have eternal life, don't take that as he may or he may not. We need to understand this as affirming that whoever uh, believes in him will have eternal life. That's how we need to understand that passage. All right, so as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, now so that we can truly understand what's going on to this reference of Moses and the serpent in the wilderness, now keep your thumb where you are in John chapter 3 and and let's go on over to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, that's the fourth book of the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I promised you guys at the beginning that we had quite a bit of work to do. Uh, Your Bibles are getting a workout today. All right, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9 of Numbers 21. Let me pick up in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. All right, so check this out. Here the Israelites are in the middle of the wilderness, and they're beginning to complain big time. They're not happy with their current situation. What does the scripture say? It says that they are uh, complaining about their food, their water, and even how long it's taking to get to where they're going. Verse four says that the people became impatient on the way. Basically, what they're saying at this point is, What are you doing, Moses? Why have you brought us out here in the middle of the wilderness to die? We had it better in Egypt as slaves. What are you thinking? There's no food and there's no water. We at least had that when we were in bondage and serving Pharaoh. So as a result of speaking against the Lord, and as a result of all their complaining, we see that the Lord, um, verse 6 explains that the Lord sent fiery serpents to the people. So in other words, poisonous snakes. So these snakes show up on the scene. They start biting everybody. A whole lot of Israelites start falling over dead. And uh, finally, the people get a clue that they made a horrible mistake. And so they run to Moses and they say, you know, pray for us. Do something about this. We're in serious trouble. We're all dying out here with these poisonous snakes. So Moses, you know, goes along with their their request. He prays and asks the Lord for help. The Lord honors Moses' prayer. He didn't have to, but he did. And tells him that if he will make a fiery serpent, and set it up on a pole, and if the people who have been bitten will look to it, then they'll be saved. So that's what he does. He makes this bronze serpent, puts it up on a pole, and if anyone who has been bitten looks to that bronze serpent that has been lifted up, they're saved from their affliction. That's what's going on in Numbers 21 when we're looking at the reference in John chapter 3. All right, so flip back with me to John chapter 3. Let's get back to our main text. we're going to pick up again in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so we now know what that means, so must the Son of Man, we now know who that is, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then after all of that, after everything that we've read up to this point, then we get to John 3.16 that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And guys, this is not just life. This is is eternal life. You see, in the wilderness, if they were bitten and looked to the snake that had been lifted up on the pole, they would be saved and could continue their earthly life. But here, what we see is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be lifted up. And if anyone looks to him, they can be saved and have eternal life. So even as far back as Numbers 21, there were things taking place that were pointing to Christ. And the people at that time did not know how all this stuff would connect. But we are on this side of history. We're on this side of the cross. We have the ability to look back and see how all of this stuff is connected in God's providence. Um, And we have the ability to see how God provided a way for the Israelites to be saved in the wilderness. And we also get to see how God provides, present tense, provides a way for us to be saved if we too will look to Christ. Now, let me ask you, doesn't that make a lot more sense now when you read John 3.16? I mean, don't get me wrong. John 3.16 makes sense on its own when we just cherry pick it out of Scripture and we just read it out of its context. We still understand that God loved us enough to send us His Son, But inside of its context, it makes even more sense. It has even a greater meaning. Guys, this is the message of the gospel. This is what we need to be telling our lost friends. We need to be telling them if they would just look to Jesus, they can be saved. Just like the Israelites um, in the wilderness, all of humanity is dying from the consequences of sin. But if we will just look to the one who has been lifted up, Jesus Christ, then we can be saved, and by believing in him, we can have eternal life. So let me ask you, have you looked to Jesus Christ for your salvation? If you have not, then the Bible says that you are lost. The Bible says that you are outside of Christ and that you still owe the payment for your sin. And we all know, according to other passages in Scripture, what that payment is. That payment is an eternal payment in hell. But that can change for you today if you are willing to look to Christ and be saved. Now, if you already have looked to Jesus for your salvation, then this is the message that you need to be taking to your lost family members, your lost friends, your lost co-workers, or anyone else who God has placed in your life. Trust in God's sovereignty. He has placed you where you are for a reason He has placed you where you are with a purpose. There are people all around you who need to hear the gospel message, and you know it. You have a responsibility to share that with them. And if by some chance you don't have any lost people in your life, then that needs to become your prayer. You need to pray that God would put some lost people in your life and pray that you would have opportunities to share the gospel with them and that when those opportunities arise— Pray that you will be faithful and that you will tell them what Jesus Christ did on the cross for your sins and for their sins. If you are a believer right now, then that means that someone obviously was willing to tell you the gospel. Be willing to do the same thing for someone else who needs to hear it. Well, Will and the musicians are gonna come on forward and we're gonna do our uh, moment of invitation. And as the music plays, guys, I just want to encourage you to take this time to reflect on what it is that we've looked at this morning. Take time to reflect on Jesus Christ. As the music plays, feel free to come to the altar and pray, or feel free to stay where you are and pray. That's fine. If you need to speak with someone this morning uh, and talk with someone about what it means to put your faith in Christ for the very first time, I'm going to be right down here in front of the podium, and I'll be more than glad to, uh, to start that conversation with you. Let's all stand together.